Resonate is a community that loves like Jesus, and we want you to experience that with us together. I want to encourage you to tune in to this online broadcast each and every week or attend our weekly gatherings in Sherwood at 10 a.m. You also can join in on one of our community groups that meet during the week here at the church building or in our homes. So to find out more about our community or give to our ministry financially, please visit our website at resonatelife.org. We're concluding our sermon series called Relationship Rescue, and we're ending it with a sermon titled Moving Together. Today, we're expanding on the topic of conflict resolution. So we as Christians are to be peacemakers, yet a lot of times we're a part of conflicts, and so it's easy to get sucked into the conflict when we're a part of the conflict, and the conflict compounds upon it and becomes a greater conflict So how are we supposed to reconcile conflict if we're a part of the conflict and get sucked into the conflict? To be ministers of reconciliation, that's what God wants us to do and to be. In Matthew 5, it says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you're with them on the way to, to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge, and the judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you will be thrown into prison. Doesn't sound like a good time. Well, basically, this verse tells us that God is saying to us, don't bring your conflict to the altar. It's kind of like our dirty laundry that we're creating in life. Don Henley says that people like dirty laundry, and God doesn't like dirty laundry. Don't bring your dirty laundry, unreconciled conflict for God to take care of. Don't go to the communion table and say, God, fix my problems, when we have the power to fix them ourselves. Go take care of the things, he says, that you need to take care of, and come back to God when you've taken care of them, because that's what he's going to tell us to do at the altar. So why do we get caught up in conflict? Because we like it. As human beings, the nature of human nature is to get caught up in conflict. We like a good fight. And when a conflict occurs, it's hard not to get sucked right into it, even when it's not our own conflict. Starting from when we are children, this experience is universal. You touched me. Stop touching me. Stay on your side. Mom, he's hurting me. She's hurting me. She's touching me. And we continue to build on those experiences So that by the time we are adults, we come into every situation with a lifetime of past experiences, some good, some bad. And those experiences color our interpretation of events. Well, the bad experiences leave us with what is called wound-based filters. And these are patterns that we repeat in our life or we see repeating over and over and over again with the expectation of a hurtful past event to occur again. It's almost like we want it to occur again. So for example, if you go to, let's say, adopt a dog from a shelter like we did once, the dog's name was Paisley, and when you first tried to pet Paisley, Paisley maybe growled a little bit. There There was a wag, but then also a snarl. And depending on the past experience of the dog, like Paisley, we just really didn't know where Paisley came from. And what experiences Paisley had. So when she snarled, you, we knew that Paisley had been hurt in the past. So we as human beings interpret a lot of people or situations or maybe different ideas that are thrown at us 
through, we, we, we picture those through our wound-based filters and we treat them as a threat. So these are the buttons that are inside of us just waiting to be pushed. These wound-based filters just push my buttons. And we come into every situation in an irritate, irritate able or offend able state. And we pump, our pump is primed for conflict. It's like a cesspool that we just jump into head first. All of our past garbage is ready for a good fight. Well, there's a cycle of conflict that we go through. And there's five basic elements that I want to teach you today about this conflict cycle. And this cycle is what keeps us striking at each other over and over and over again. Well, number one, the first part of the cycle is we know our rights. See, we are fortunate to live in a society where we all have rights and we're made aware of those rights. But in conflict situations, our concern over our own personal rights causes us to be very self-centered. Our rights become like entitlements. So a conflict begins when we feel that someone has stepped on our rights in some way. You've moved my, my cheese. You've moved my way of life. You've threatened my way of life. And when we view our rights as inalienable, then we feel almost like they're sacred. So we go to great lengths to defend our rights. Our rights and our belief in our entitlement of them become a form of power over other people. So then, if you move my cheese, if you threaten my life, if you touch my rights or you take from me in some way, or if you even just declare me wrong, you are wrong. And however my wound-based filter reacts, then there comes the reaction out of that. So when we sense our rights are being violated, those wound-based filters kick in like a familiar, familiar idea that happened before. So our reptilian brain, our amygdala brain becomes activated and we will react. So we experience an inner reaction of negative feelings, thoughts, and impulses, and our past wounds amplify these feelings. Imagine carrying a glass filled with full of wine and being bumped into, it's like this full glass of wine, and our past wounds tend to be the, like the wine. N.T. Wright said, that, said it this way, when you're jolted, what spills out is whatever is filling you. So when you're suddenly put to the test and don't have time to think about how you're coming across, your real nature will come out. That's why character needs to go all the way through. Whatever fills you will spill out. So the bump is like the conflict, and it's like you've lost control of what's filling you, and your reaction is like the wine just spilling out all over the place. It's a verbal, sometimes vomit, that comes out of us. It's that cesspool of, of hurts and habits and hang-ups inside of our life and harbored resentments and anger towards what people have taken from me and done to me and stomped me down that comes out of me at that moment because I've done no character work on the inside and what comes out of me is just verbal vomit. So then number three is revenge. Revenge is the desire to get back at the person and make them pay. Well, our fallen understanding of the idea of justice mistakenly thinks justice means making somebody pay for wrongdoing. That's not what justice is. That's retribution, thinking the other person needs to feel as bad as I do or worse. And since we feel that they have stepped on our rights, we think we now have the right to make them feel 
bad or make and stomp them down even more. This can look like fighting or it can look like passive aggressive behavior where we even give somebody the cold shoulder or we just pretend like they don't exist or we defriend them or we DTR, define the relationship as you're no longer in my inner circle. Both are ways of making a person pay. So brain science actually proves that revenge activates our brain's pleasure centers. This is where endorphins are released, that adrenaline release that we actually feel better when we fight, when we take revenge, when we take a course of action that hurts another person because they hurt me so bad, I'm gonna hurt them worse. When we start hurting them back, that, that activates a pain or a pleasure center, that endorphin center that's released that I actually feel better when somebody feels worse than me. It's actually I'm physiologically geared for this. So God's justice is achieved through reconciliation and healing, not from stomping on another person. Jesus was never vindictive. He explicitly repudiates the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth mentality. But yet as we take revenge, sometimes that's not good enough. We need a group of people to take revenge. So that's when the rumors and gossip start. So rumors are in a sense another form of revenge, but with a whole nother community of people. They're bringing, we, we bring our own phase of the conflict cycle to another person. So we are, if you are assertive and confident, you can go talk directly to the person who's wronged you, right? But often we are conflict avoidant. We are not assertive and confident. So we're conflict avoidant. So we talk to everybody else about the primary person. We tell our side of the story. We single story that other person, wanting the jury of public opinion to, to convict the other person and acquit, acquit me of, of the wrongdoing. So it's an example of our desire to be right again. But this rightness is an illusion. Since don't forget that the person you had the conflict with is most likely doing the very same thing about you. In either case, all gossip does is fuel more resentment. And when you gossip about your conflict with somebody else, it actually makes you relive the experience over and over and over again, feeling all those negative emotions over and over and over again. But guess what? When we relive story in our mind, that story because of the revenge endorphin release and that, that adrenaline release that we get, those negative emotions and that experience and those feelings grow even more strongly. So healing a con conflict, gossip actually exasperates a conflict. We can engage in gossip as a listener too. And so when somebody gossips to us about another person, we just need to go, hey, you need to go talk to that person because the Bible condemns gossip repeatedly. It's one of the most mentioned sins in the Bible, but somehow Christians tend to dismiss it. Yet James says the tongue can be a small spark that sets an entire force on fire. So we can, we can talk about a situation with another person if we're actually seeking wise counsel. So if you need wise counsel about conflict with another person, invite somebody that you trust, a mentor, somebody in your life that will actually challenge your point of view or suggest things that you can change in to heal the rift. And sometimes the distinction can be subtle, but in general, when you're focused on another person's flaws or wrongdoings, you're basically gossiping. 
But when you're focused on your own flaws and wrongdoings with the goal of finding peace and resolution and reconciliation, that is seeking counsel, that is helpful. Well, number five is resentments. This is when it just gets down deep in the darkness, in the blackness of my heart. This is like the leftovers of the other four phases of the conflict. It's the cesspool of negativity, the sewage of my grudges, the toilet of my unforgiveness. It's like drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. This in our life can fester like mold on our heart, like black mold on our heart that can cause us to become addicted to literally anything and everything on the planet just to heal the pain and the anguish that we feel from the sewage of our harbored resentments. It causes our next interactions, but really our interactions with, with, the, with our friends and everybody else to go badly. We become a very negative, wound-based person. We're just primed for the next conflict to go worse and worse and worse because every cycle needs energy. It needs an energy source. So the resentments we carry are the fuel that keeps the whole conflict cycle going. And this is why Ephesians 4, Paul tells us to not let the sun go down on our anger. He's referring to the insidious, submerged anger and bitterness, the lemon lips and the elevens in our heads that grow over time because of the hurt and the pain that others cause in our lives, and we hold resentment against them because of such things. So when we stuff it down, it festers, and you give the devil a foothold in your life. So the prince of darkness lives in that toilet of unforgiveness, of the negativity and the bitterness and the sewage of resentment in our life. And we need to drain this nasty wound. This is like a festering leg wound that you've let go for weeks, and it's pussing in your life. And that's all you can think about. That's all you can see. That's what everyone else sees, this nasty festering wound on your leg. We need to cut it open and let it drain out and and let the conflict in our life drain out and break this cycle in our, in our, really our world, in our life, in our relationships. So how do we do this? Because I know that's super graphic, but that is very real. And people live with harbored resentments their entire life, 50, 60 years of just harbored resentments over... Now, I'm not talking about abuse, because abuse is one thing. I'm talking about conflict. Jesus gives us five conflict-breaking principles. The first one is self-denial. Jesus teaches to deny yourself and take up your cross, laying down your life for your enemy. So to be sure, this also means letting go of our rights, right? When your rights are violated, self-denial says, just let it go. It's almost the exact opposite of what the world teaches us is is self-fulfillment and defending our rights. But instead, Jesus instructs us to lay down our rights and our life, considering others to be as just as important as yourself. My dad almost died this last week from, from COVID. And when I was just trying to like reach out and help and the world became, what can I say? The things that I consider important, the small stuff or the little conflicts in my life, I just went, I need to let it go. And I wish that we could do that for our entire life, that it wouldn't take just trauma to help us let go the small stuff. We need to let go the small stuff more often. Turning the other cheek, yes, 
Not being a doormat, though. A doormat does, does so out of fear. But self-denial is done out of love, where we just let the small stuff go. Most of the time, people don't even know that they're hurting us or doing things to create conflict. They're just doing things in their own self-preservation. So something to remember is that rights do not equal worth. So you don't need to cling to your rights. You can't sacrifice them. You'll find it incredibly freeing to opt out of the whole who wrongs who game, who wronged me game, and just died all that. So freedom comes from unplugging from the world of status and that source of life of climbing the ladder and money and, and prestige, instead plugging into God as our only underlying source. So another note is that the principle of people having inalienable rights is not actually a thing. It's not biblical. And in our country, we hear that People have certain inalienable rights, but biblically speaking, rights are not inalienable. Only value is inalienable. And the Bible talks about not rights, but righteousness. And righteousness means right doing. It's about, it's about not getting, but doing. So instead of asserting our rights, we should be expressing worth and value, especially to the people that we're in conflict. They're still a person and they're still created in the image of God. Well, number two is security in Christ. This is the product of plugging into God as our one and only lifeline. If you get all of your security in Jesus, you will, you will not need to defend your status of being right. Yet we're human beings and we have a nature and it's almost impossible to get all of our security from Christ because we have people around us. I have children, I have a wife, I have friends. I get a lot of security from people. But if I bank on that all the time, if I get my status from that, if I solely get my worth from that, we need to have the courage to potentially look maybe vulnerable, maybe flawed, maybe wrong in front of others. We don't have to, we don't have to get our worth and our, our, our value from people that, that maybe might judge us for being wrong, weak, or flawed. Maybe that's the very thing that we need to do to build stronger relationships. Maybe, maybe people will respect us more when we step out of the conflict cycle and just look at another person and remind ourselves that life is Christ, nothing else matters, and I love you regardless of what's going on right now, and my rightness is not more important than our relationship. Maybe we gain more respect that way. Well, in John 13, he knew he was where he was going. Jesus did. And his identity in God was solid. Because of that, he was able to kneel down and wash the feet of his disciples. So if you can imagine Peter's attitude or Peter's pride or Peter's rights and what he was experiencing, that should have been beneath him, right? And so, so we need to think about then sacrificial suffering. Not only do we sacrifice our, our rights and we find more inalienable value versus rights. We have righteousness about right living and doing versus right getting, but we also have then right suffering. And this is the primary tenet that Jesus calls us to in our life. Be willing to endure suffering for the sake of others. A willingness to suffer allows us to enter into relationships in a brand new way. And when I'm willing to accept pain from you, I am not going to jump up to protect myself all the time. God accepts pain from us every day. And love bears all things, endures all things. Now, again, I'm not talking about abuse. That's not conflict. I'm talking about just conflict, not abuse. 
So this is not the same as letting yourself get beat up over and over again, since that's not best for either party. So love sometimes lets go as a loving response. Sometimes we need to let go of relationships as a form of reconciliation. So notice that in this case, it's a response as Jesus responds versus a reaction. Reactions are in the moment, intended usually to hurt the other person, whereas responses are carefully considered outside of the heat of the moment with well-intentioned both people in mind. So non-resistance is a perfect example of sacrificial suffering, non-resistance. Like we saw with Martin Luther King, what he advocated for, the willingness to suffer deflating a conflict. So then we need to seek reconciliation. Whenever possible, in person, we need to reach out to another person to seek reconciliation. In Matthew 5, 24, Jesus tells us not to go to the altar if you are fighting with your brother. First, go and be reconciled. So the anti-conflict opposite of gossip is going to the other person directly and talking about your conflict with the purpose of finding resolution. So no matter who caused the breach, it's up to us, it's up to you and me to take the initiative to resolve it. But yet sometimes the other person that you're in conflict with is not able to work with you to find resolution. So whether you can get there or, or with the person or not, that is why in all situations we have this Jesus rule, and that's number five. 70 times seven forgiveness. And in the Bible, the number seven represents completion, wholeness, fullness, and so Jesus in Matthew 18 tells his disciples, 70 times seven offer forgiveness. So he's saying your forgiveness must be infinite and never ending. It must be whole and complete and complete righteousness. So every time we're wronged, we need to let it go and forgive. Every time, no longer harbored resentment. Forgiveness does not need to be earned. The other person does not need to repent because God unilaterally forgave us without our repentance. So not only does God we need to follow God's model in this. We need to do this for our own good as well because releasing that heavy debt of you owe me, it frees us from carrying around resentment, depriving the cycle of its fuel. So with God as our sole source of life, plugged into the Jesus source, these tools that Jesus gives us, we can step back, we can view conflict then as an opportunity to sow peace and reconciliation whenever there is a fight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, Lord, the, the task and the calling to be a minister of reconciliation. Help our conflicts to never turn into resentments. Lord, help us to temper our reactions. Help us to heal, heal our wounds, Lord, these wound-based filters that we have in our life. Heal those wounds so that we can enter into relationships with more pure intention. And when trouble hits us, Lord, that we can first just work on letting it go, having the best, best thoughts, and they are the image of God, and they are your child, feelings about another person, so that relationship can be had on that basis first. Help us to reconcile all conflict in our life. Lord, even when it seems impossible, you are the God of impossible things. And so, Lord, maybe you need to step into these conflicts that are so troubling to us. So Lord, we ask you to do so. And for anyone that's in a severe amount of pain because of their conflict, Lord, I pray that this message would be healing to their soul, healing to their minds, 
healing to the heartache that they have, Lord, the separation that they feel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.